Latter-day Contemplation is a podcast hosted by two Latter-day Saints who have found great value in experiencing God through walking a path of contemplation. The views expressed herein are our own. Hello and welcome to Latter-day Contemplation. We are your hosts, Riley Risto and Christopher Hurtado. Latter-day Contemplation started as an exploration of contemplative practices from many traditions to enhance our discipleship of Jesus Christ. We are by no means experts in the topics we discuss, but what we have is an openness to questions, a hunger to discover truth wherever we can find it, and a desire to share in the transformative life of inner peace. We love that you've joined us, and we hope that you find value in this community. Welcome back, everyone. We are here again as non-experts to talk about another beatitude. This time, blessed are the pure in heart. I'm Christopher Hurtado. I'm Riley Risto. And I feel like I had to make that that statement again, even though it's part of our intro. I'm learning. I'm, And in fact, I've had some openings. I'm, I'm excited to share, Riley, some of the openings that I've had and how I've, and because of those openings, felt unworthy. And it's interesting because I wrote that earlier and in writing it to someone, uh, you know, someone close to me, and I actually sent you a message too. So two or three people close to me. Um, I immediately got the response, I'm already always worthy. And that was a beautiful thing. And so with the caveat that that I'm not an expert and with the caveat that I feel unworthy, even if uh, I am worthy, uh, that I'm not epistemologically lined up with the, my metaphysical reality, I'd like to share some insights that I have into this idea, you know, these are ideas that I've taught for years as a philosophy professor, teaching Islamic philosophy in particular, and that have really started to open up for me because, you know, in the classroom, I, I treated them academically. And, and now as I go back and study some of these texts and, I, and I'm digging and I'm looking for something that I can take and apply, that changes everything. And so these are. this is the idea. I'll just give a brief overview and then we can go into it. So, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. This is the King James English. The idea that, that we are made in the image of God is something that we all agree on. And so the question is, is that image of God in us visible to us? Do we actually see ourselves for who and what we are? And that's exactly what I meant by do we know ourselves epistemologically the way we really are metaphysically in the image of God? And the answer for at least some of the ideas that I have, they come from some of the greatest thinkers in all of the history of humankind. One of them, Al-Ghazali, is lesser known, and he gets some of his ideas from Plato, who's probably better known, and yet not really, most of us know the name, but we're not really conversant with the ideas. And these men have have contributed some some really good insights. And then, of course, St. Thomas Aquinas along the lines of Al-Ghazali, because St. Thomas Aquinas actually takes ideas from Al-Ghazali, just like Al-Ghazali takes them from Plato. And this is why we call it the Great Conversation, because it starts with, with Plato. And then we say, I think it was Alfred North Whitehead that said, all of the history of philosophy is footnotes to Plato. But the idea, as Al-Ghazali expresses it, is that we have to polish our heart so that it can properly reflect that image of God in which we are created. And so that work comes down to putting our souls in order as 
as Plato talked about it, and I'll, I'm going to talk about it in Al-Ghazali's terms. We have an intellectual soul. We have, and he calls that the angel soul. We have an irascible soul, and irascibility is that that coming to anger, right? That the, the possibility and potential of anger, which he calls the dog soul. And you can think of the 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 angel soul as he calls the rational soul in the head, as where Plato put it, and the irascible soul in the chest. And then we have the concupiscent soul or the desiring soul in the stomach. And Al-Ghazali has another book that he writes about breaking the two desires, and that's the two desires are the desires of the stomach and the desires of the of the sexual organs. So you can even think of that, even though it's Plato's locating it in the stomach, you can think of those two desires, the desires of the stomach and the desires of the sexual organs. We're talking about appetites. And so when we bring the irascibility and the concupiscence under the rational soul, when, we, when, when the rational rules over those two things, it's not that we want to get rid of them. We need irascibility. We need desire. Without desire, we wouldn't get off the couch and go to work or get out of bed and go to work. We wouldn't, um, we wouldn't seek a mate and get married and have children. Without irascibility, we might stand by indifferent when, uh, when a gang steals an old lady's purse. There would be no sense of injustice in us. But we have to keep these things in check. And so the idea in Al-Ghazali is to have the angel soul rule over the dog soul and the pig soul. And this is what it means to polish that mirror. When we have that kind of order in our soul, we can more clearly reflect the reality, the metaphysical reality of the imago dei, the image of God in us. And when we do this as individuals, we can take this now and bring it to a community level because a community has to be ordered in the same way. And this is what Plato was writing about in his famous Republic. And so that's kind of an overview of the conversation. We probably need to go into it, you know, step by step. What do you think, Riley? Those are great metaphors and I think a great way to introduce this conversation on one of these Beatitudes that we've decided to speak on, which is, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And I love this metaphor that you put forth, or or rather that Al-Ghazali puts forth about the mirror of the soul or the mirror of the heart, which is allows us to not only reflect God, right? But when we see into a mirror, what do we see? We see ourselves. And so we're seeing the potentiality of God within. And you can only do that when you polish the mirror. I love that uh, metaphor. And so I, I let's talk a little bit about the beatitude, pure in heart shall see God, and how it relates to this idea that Al-Ghazali puts forward. I mean... It's it's likely he knew of Christ, obviously, and I mean, you know more about the guy than I do. I've read very little about Al-Ghazali, but um, enough to know that there's some there's some great wisdom in his teachings, but what's the connection there with what Christ is trying to get at? You know, I don't think that, that Al-Ghazali, in saying what he's saying, is thinking of Christ at all. Of course, Christ is, Jesus is the Christ in the Qur'an. Right in the Islamic tradition, Jesus is the Christ. He's the Messiah, um, and he's going to come again, and he's going to judge us, and there's all of that. And he's born from Mary, from a virgin birth, and yet he's a prophet. And I think n- this has nothing to do with what he's um, talking about. And in f- and I'm not sure that that 
you know, when we say, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God, and Jesus is the one teaching this, that he's talking about himself either. We're talking about seeing God, and we're made in the image of God. And if we can polish that mirror of the heart or the soul or the um, intellect, not the not, intellect doesn't mean ratiocination. It means that direct access to God, the one that we're talking about oftentimes, hopefully all the time on our podcast, which is about having an experience of God. That kind of direct experience comes through the intellect. And so a lot of times we think about this as something that's going to happen. And I think even Al-Ghazali may have meant that this would happen um, at the, you know, when, when we, at the, on judgment day, right? When we get to the end of our life and, and on judgment day, you'll actually see God. There is the beatific vision as part of the Islamic perspective, just as it is for uh, the Christian perspective. And yet, you know, he, he mentions in his book, The Alchemy of Happiness, the idea that you can actually just sit still. There's this meditation aspect, right? If you just sit still and close your eyes and and get rid of everything around you and just focus on what there is that's not what's around you, that you would actually start to get access to yourself. And he's saying you have to know yourself to know your God because you're created in the image of God. And so the key to that knowledge of God is knowledge of the self. At least that's the beginning of it. And and then he goes on to say that, you know, that it isn't allowed in in Sharia law, in, in Islamic law, to go too deep into the self. I don't know why. That's something that just came up in my last reading that I thought I need to ask a sheikh about this, you know, as, as someone who knows uh, Sharia better than I do. But it's interesting that he takes this approach of meditation and this approach of looking inwardly to see God, whether it would be now or later. There seems to be an indication that you could do it now, but that it might not be allowed. But certainly there's the idea of seeing God in, you know, at Judgment Day. What is, what is he referring to with the idea of polishing? Well, for me, see, that was a question for me too. You know, the image is clear, right? If you have a mirror, it can't really reflect well if it's cloudy. And so you have to polish the mirror. But what I came to understand as I as I studied, as I read more closely, I realized that what he's saying is, again, that the way that we actually perform this action of polishing the mirror is to bring our desires. And I think, again, of those two desires, the, the, the desires of the... Um, of the uh, stomach and the desires of the sexual organs into check and also our irascibility, our potential for anger, which has its place just like desires have their place. But to bring those things into their proper place is going to give us access to the intellect, right? To have the intellect rule over those other two means that we have a properly ordered soul and one in which we can begin to see clearly one in which that mirror is polished such that it clearly reflects the image of God. One of the things you brought up in a conversation we had before the, sh- the episode here was you're not sure how this aligns with uh, chakras, the idea of chakras in, in Hindu Indian teaching. But, uh, I, you know, that stuck with me for a second. I've been, I've been thinking about that since you mentioned it because you're talking about alignment, bringing things into alignment. And I believe last episode we even talked about the definition of justice or righteousness being a right relationship, one, one ourselves with God. And, you know, many times these metaphors are used and you can extend them sometimes too far. But I like this idea of bringing 
parts of your body or sections of your body into alignment as it relates to some type of metaphor. Now you're talking about irascibility and concupiscence and those those sort of things that the, the body sections represent a certain um, uh, feeling or... Um, I'm not sure how to say it, but anyway. You could say powers, potentials, okay, okay. potentialities, powers, yeah. Which, by the way, are, are virtues, right? One of, the, one of the words that's translated in the King James Bible, at least, as virtue is actually um, chayad, which is power or ability or even army. Army comes from ars, the Latin word for tool. Yeah, and Hindus do the same thing with, with the various chakras. Each one represents some some motive of action some desire um and and the goal for them as well is to bring those into alignment put them in their proper place um metaphorically speaking right so that and maybe some of them take it literally in terms of you know energies and whatnot but nevertheless i think there's value in looking at all these various traditions maybe from a perennial perspective of, of just that you know kind of unified truth of things that there's value in bringing your desires into alignment one with another and, and really putting first things first, like putting them in priority order. Yeah, you know, there, there is really a direct relationship between what you mentioned that we talked about last time in, ter- in terms of justice uh, being an order, an ordered soul produces justice. That's really what we're talking about here because if you take these different parts of the soul and and you have we can we can talk about the cardinal virtues you have prudence temperance or moderation courage and justice and justice is supposed to happen in the soul when the others are present when you have prudence temperance or moderation and courage you have justice what is prudence prudence means prudence is something that perfects your your deliberation right in in making choices in life such that you advance spiritually, morally, such that you're moving in the right direction, facing in the right direction, you're repenting, right? You have to make choices. And in making those choices, you have to deliberate. And you have to deliberate according to a golden mean. Aristotle talks about a golden mean, which is, look, each each virtue is a golden mean with two extremes possible, which are vices. There's the vice of deficiency, and there's the vice of excess. So if you have too little prudence, that means you're not thinking things through enough, right? You're, you're, you're rushing into things. You're not taking careful consideration of your choices. If you over-deliberate, well, now the opportunity has come and gone and you're still thinking about it. So you have to find that mean of thinking about things carefully enough, but not over-deliberating. And then you have courage. Why? Because even if you have figured out what the right thing to do is, sometimes it takes courage to actually do it. So if, you're too, if you have lack courage, you have the vice of cowardice. This is, this is easy to understand. Cowardice, you don't have enough courage. If you have too much courage, this is what we call foolhardiness. So let's say the house is on fire across the street and the little girl inside is going to die. And you think, I've you know, I've got it, and you have to think, right? You have to think, what do I do? So if you can see the fire uh, truck coming, you can hear the sirens, you can see it coming, it's just turning the corner onto your street. It might be foolhardy of you to rush in with your dad bod and no training and no oxygen and no proper clothing 
when the guys coming around the corner have, you know, the, the fireman bod and the training and the experience and the knowledge and the oxygen and the clothing. And so you would be foolhardy to rush in. But if you don't hear them, you don't see them, you may die trying, but you've got to have the courage to try to save the little girl. And then you have temperance. The thing is, is you have desires. And if you don't control your desires, your desires will control you. That's just how it works. You don't control them, they control you. And if your desires control you, then you'll never be satisfied because there's, it's never enough. And if you're never satisfied, you'll never be happy. So when you get these cardinal virtues, right, when you have your soul in order such that you have prudence, you have temperance or moderation, you have courage, now there's justice in the soul because justice is, can be thought of as a right ordering of things. We talked about that last time, right? When, when things are in their proper place. That's what justice means in this context. Yeah, and I think all of these virtues that you speak of, and really any other virtues, I mean, there's the three theological virtues of faith, hope, and charity. And I think Dante even talks about those in, in Purgatory, where he tries to relate the cardinal virtues to the theological virtues. Anyway, it's really what you talk about is the most important aspect of all of this, and that is that they are in their right proportion or relation to each other. Because if they're out of balance then you're controlled by that that desire. And, and so being in the right proportionality, the right balance, allows this kind of, let's call it a Venn diagram of overlap where everything is in its place and you're optimized. You're hitting your full potential. Yeah, you know, it's interesting to note that Al-Ghazali was the one who introduced those theological virtues. In the Western tradition, we're more familiar with them from Aquinas, but again, Al-Ghazali is an intellectual influence of Aquinas, an acknowledged one at that. And so he's the one, the one, the virtues I was talking about, the cardinal virtues, they come from Aristotle. Al-Ghazali adds the, the theological virtues, right? Well, they're, they're in 1 Corinthians too, right? They are also in yeah. the Bible, yes. Uh, he treats them philosophically, theologically. But yeah, we, we get the right. They're coming from, what are they? Hope, faith, and charity, yeah, right? faith, hope, and charity. And the difference is, you know, the, the, the cardinal virtues that I mentioned, these are things, this is how it's understood, right? That they can be worked on by us, whereas the other ones are given through grace. This is, the, this is as they differentiate them, at least. I think that's how Aquinas would talk about it. Do you agree? Um, maybe. I think that everyone can develop what they're given, maybe they're given a starting point, you know, spiritual gifts, so to speak. But if if not developed or, um, you know, worked on, then they become stagnant. Oh, yeah, that's a, that's a question mark for me, too. I was, I was asking if that was your understanding of Aquinas. I, that's my understanding of Aquinas. But yeah, the question is, you know, are these spiritual gifts, uh, as Aquinas says, and and if they are, then then comes the next question, right? Is this something that you can if they're talents, if they're like talents, of course, the talents that are mentioned in the Bible are actually units of currency, but our usual understanding of them uh, is like something like gifts, right? Because we think of talents as gifts if we don't know the unit of currency of, of a talent. And so the idea is that if you did not, well, them being actually units of currency, they're invested, right? So if you don't, let's say if you don't invest in whatever is given, if you don't take whatever is given and invest and put effort into it and try to multiply it, then why would you be surprised if it, if it remains stagnant or if you even lose it? Yeah, so to kind of bring this full circle to the, the question of the work of polishing, 
is that really trying to bring things into alignment with each other and, and have the proper proportion of these virtues? That's my understanding, Riley. And that's where I said at the beginning that I got excited about the, the possibility of applying these ideas that I've been teaching for years, again, taking this academic approach, and now I'm taking this devotional approach, this contemplative approach to the same writings and looking for, because, I, because I, I've known all along that there's something to them that's applicable. And as a matter of fact, you know, the whole idea of the, as Ryan Holiday puts it, the turtleneck-wearing uh, philosopher, you know, with the, as I call, uh, as, I, as I talk about him, in the ivory tower completely disconnected from reality. I mean, people think philosophy is a waste of time. And in some sense, you know, given the modern state of things, the, the, the current state of things, uh, they're right. But this is not what philosophy was in antiquity, and it's not what it was in, in the Middle Ages, and it's not what it was for Aquinas and Al-Ghazali. It's something, it's a way of life. It's, it's answering these big questions, the same questions that we have about how to live our life, right? And, you know, some people say, well, you can find all the answers in the Bible, but they're not all there. Well, in finding answers in the Bible versus being able to apply them and build upon them and, you know, use them in your life, totally different, right? I mean, we can find answers anywhere. You can find answers, as we've talked about many times, by walking out into nature, but it's what you do with the answers. But how do we apply these ideas? And, and again, we have great thinkers like Al-Ghazali, one of the greatest thinkers in, in, all of the, in all of human history, that have really given us some really good insights. And so it, it looks like for me, to put it very personally, it looks like I need to get my desires, my appetites under control, in check, to get my soul rightly ordered, right? I need to get, and I've actually, I think I've made some progress in terms of anger. Uh, so maybe these other, these desires are the next level for me. And of course, I've got to continue to work on this. And it's interesting because as I said, as I started to think about this, I felt like I'm not worthy, you know, to even, why am I talking about this on a podcast? You know, okay, we have our intro that says we're, we're not experts. We have, I made another statement, another disclaimer. The reality is, if I'm turning toward God, if I'm noticing, right, and this is contemplation is noticing, if I'm noticing that I'm lacking in, if, the, if I'm lacking order in my soul, if I'm lacking control over my desires or, you know, over my concupiscence or my irascibility, then I'm turning and facing, I'm repenting. This is active. This is happening. I'm turning, I'm facing, and I'm, I have a broken heart and a contrite spirit, and God is going to be willing to work with me every single time I turn to him. I, all I have to do is turn to him, and he comes running to me. Just like in the story in the Bible of the prodigal son. Of the prodigal son. Right? It is in, in the time of that story for a patriarch to go running to a boy is just unheard of. It's undignified. And we think of God as so, you know, and he is so far above us. And yet if we just turn to him, he comes running to us. And that's, that just fills my soul with hope. And, and my faith is increased. And I feel like, yeah, I can do this. Not alone. But given that I've been given this direction, given that I have these insights into how I can move forward 
And given that God is willing to work with me, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. So there's this, what you might call a, a very unique understanding within our religion and culture of of what pure in heart means. If, if, if the Mormon hears that phrase, pure in heart, they instantly go to Zion. And for Christ, you know, may, maybe that's a little bit convoluted to go there, but basically what I'm thinking here is when Christ uttered these words, the pure in heart shall see God, I don't think he was thinking of Jackson County, Missouri. No, I don't think so either. So there's something else going on here this connection between pure in heart and Zion that we're meant to learn from, and it has nothing to do with the geographic location. And so the, the very metaphor itself of pure in heart, obviously, you know, they're taking an, an organ, which has its function of pumping blood and everything, and that's fine. But we've in, in this kind of language, we've invested the heart with all kinds of emotions and desires and, and that sort of thing. And it's the purity of those desires as, as we've talked about in these, uh, these virtues, these cardinal virtues, it's the purity, the right relationship, the alignment of those virtues that allows one to have a pure heart. Yeah, let me say something about that because I, I said earlier that the, that the heart means the soul or the intellect, right? That these are three, that they're synonymous. All three of these are synonymous. Al-Ghazali is very clear. He says, when, when I say heart, I don't mean that pound of flesh on the left-hand side of our body. He actually says this in The Alchemy of Happiness. He's, he's saying, this is the soul. This is the essence of the human being. This, and he says it's a traveler. He says it's here on earth. It's a visitor. It's a stranger. It's the exact word that he uses is it's a stranger. And so actually, we were talking pre-recording, Riley, as uh, you might recall, that I mentioned that in the Islamic tradition, it is thought that the soul returns to God, or at least to the unseen world, as opposed to the, the material world that is seen, the one that we can measure, and the one that science has access to, which is not all there is. This is clear that to anyone who has experienced love, to anyone who has experienced beauty, to anyone who has experienced truth, goodness, these are not material things. And they're part of our, our experience. They're part of the human experience. And so the soul returns to the unseen world in sleep because the soul needs rest from this realm. It has to return to God in some sense. And that's just a beautiful... We don't know what happens in sleep. To me, that's as good an answer as any. It gives me something to think about. Before we get too far away from this, because you said something that really piqued my interest. You said the heart is a stranger. Say it again. The heart is a stranger to this earth, right? A stranger to this world. Yeah, because the heart means the soul, right? The soul, it, it, it's not a part of the material world. So let me read this straight out of DNC 45, uh, verse 17. For as ye have looked upon the long absence of your spirits from your bodies to be a bondage, I will show unto you how the day of redemption shall come, and also the restoration of scattered Israel. So prior to that, verse 17, he says this about Enoch and his people, basically the city of Enoch. Wherefore, hearken ye together, and let me show unto you even my wisdom, 
the wisdom of him whom ye say is the God of Enoch and his brethren, who were separated from the earth and were received unto myself, a city reserved until a day of righteousness shall come, a day which was sought for by all holy men, and they found it not because of wickedness and abominations. Now pay attention to this part. And confessed they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth, but obtained a promise that they should find it and see it in their flesh. Oh, man. That's powerful. It's basically saying the exact same thing, that our spirits are strangers and pilgrims, and those few people, like the people in the city of Enoch, that find that Zion, that purity of heart, heart meaning soul, not that fleshy pound on the left side of our bodies, as you mentioned, but those few who find it, obtain the promise that they should find it in their flesh. It's not that they're taking this city and it's getting transported by some laser beam into space. They're transported away from, quote-unquote, the world into the metaphorical, or actually you could say metaphorical or literal presence of God. Yeah, so, you know, Plato actually in the Republic, he deals with the idea that, you know, moving on from the well-ordered soul, that the same thing that happens in the individual, and here's where I always paraphrase or quote Shakespeare, and I think I can just quote him here, what is the city but the people, right? The same order has to exist in the city, in the community, right? In, in, in his time, the city-state, right? But this is the, the level of the community. So if we're looking to build Zion, it looks like there's some inner work we have to do. And the presence of God in our community will be available to us when we're prepared to receive it individually. And yet we work together in community. Remember that in the Bible when it says your body is a temple, that that you is plural. And so God wants to come to dwell within us. But when I say us, I mean as a community, the community of Christ. That's the temple. That's the dwelling place of God on earth. We have to prepare ourselves to receive him by being pure in heart. And so it isn't an, is it any wonder then that he says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. So let's go back to the beatitude progression here, because a lot of people might be asking, okay, how do I know if I'm pure in heart? Or how do I become pure in heart? Because it's kind of an abstract term, right? Pure in heart, what does that mean? I mean, I think most of us might know what it feels like or whatever to have purity of uh, desire or intent. But like, how do you get to this point of being pure in heart? Well, fortunately, we have this little roadmap, this little progression here called the Beatitudes that Christ gave us. And immediately prior to this state of blessedness called pure in heart is the last episode we talked about, which is blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. And so, and that, of course, progressed from a set of other Beatitudes. But it's important to note that immediately preceding purity of heart is this attitude of mercy, of looking at your brothers and sisters with a degree of grace and saying, I can extend that to them. I can be merciful to them. And ourselves, Riley. I had a powerful personal experience this morning in thinking about this, as I mentioned already, of 
well, of receiving mercy from God and of being able, therefore, to be merciful to myself, you know, in, in contemplating ordering my soul. So on the one hand, we've talked about how to do this in terms of ordering your soul. On the other hand, there are steps, and, and the Beatitudes do, as you've said, build on one another. Absolutely. So, I mean, if, if anyone's confused as to what this means, what it looks like, how we approach it, I would highly suggest just following the Beatitudes in order and going through this very systematic and important process of emptying, of mourning for those who are mourning and being comforted ourselves in doing so. And, and also and also of mourning ourselves, right? Because if we're emptying ourselves of false identities, then we're going to mourn the loss of those false identities ourselves. Yes. The, the gifts of meekness and humility, hunger, thirsting after righteousness, all of these are precursors to that purity of heart. Yeah, the hungering and thirsting after righteousness, that's the, that's the broken heart, contrited spiritedness that I mentioned, right? It's realizing, oh, you know, I'm lacking. And there's the hunger, right? The hunger is in realizing I'm missing something. I'm, I'm far from God. And, and I yearn to be closer. There it is. That's it. That's hungering and thirsting after righteousness. You know, we've made a made it a point, Riley, to to podcast on each of these beatitudes. For what it's worth, there's 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 that right. There's we have so far we've we've gone in order right. You and Shiloh started this before I came along, and our next episode will be also on a, on a beatitude. I believe it's on the blessed are the peacemakers. So we continue to climb the ladder of the beatitudes, and then there's the episode with Morgan. Aldous on the Beatitudes, the alchemy of the Beatitudes. That's another one. Yeah, good ones to go back and listen to if you're unfamiliar with this sort of dialogue you and I have had about the Beatitudes and their importance in our lives in helping us to structure ourselves a little bit um, to be in right relationship. Yes. Sorry, that just really spoke to me, the structure. What is religion? Because Because I was listening to actually... Rob Bell on a podcast with the minimalists and uh, Joshua Fields Milburn uh, is, is someone I've met and I, I really admire him and, and you know, the work he's doing and also Rob Bell and the work he's doing, although I don't know him personally, but I was listening to the two of them in conversation and the question was asked whether minimalism was in any sense like religion. And it's interesting because I mentioned that philosophy in antiquity was a way of life. Philosophy was in antiquity a lot like what we think of today as religion, whereas religion in antiquity was more like what today is typically thought of as patriotism, because religion was about the the relationship between the man and the state, whereas religion or philosophy in antiquity is more about how to live your life. So that's, that's how we think of religion today. It tells me how to live my life. And so what is the meaning of this word, religion? The, the Latin ligare is to bind. So what, what it does, and I've always thought about this in terms of binding us together as a community, and I think that there's definitely something to that. But I heard Rob Bell something, say something unfamiliar, which was he introduced to me the idea of actually binding us together. So it's this ordering of the soul that we're talking about. 
it actually gives us, it's what holds us together, right? Those, those practices, those ordinances, they actually hold us together in a world that would otherwise, would, that's chaotic, right? And in fact, the whole story of the Bible, the whole beginning of it is bringing order to chaos. This is religion. This is binding together. This is putting things in order. This is taking and creating order out of chaos. When you talk about binding and what keeps coming to my mind is is this idea of restoration and gathering. You know, Patrick Mason's got this new book out where he, he talks a lot about restoration in terms of Israel and how Israel is this figurative representation of the whole human family. And to bring us all back into the gathering is is to restore Israel to itself, to each other. And so it's the binding again of the human family. And of course, what's one of the greatest works that has come out of our own faith, and that is binding families across time. Yes. So same idea. The work that we do in the temple is all about binding us to our ancestors. So I think, you know, I think we can take both senses. The sense that I said Rob Bell introduced to me, which is to bring which is right in line with what we've been talking about here in terms of ordering our own souls, bringing order to the chaos that would otherwise be in our own souls. And then outside of us, right, between us and among us, binding us together as a community and bringing that same order to the community. But it starts with the man in the mirror, back to that polishing that mirror, right? The mirror of the soul, the heart, the intellect, the one that has direct experience of God, or at least can, if the mirror is polished and can rightly reflect that image of God in which we're created. So I want to read something again from DNC 45. Um, I may not read all of this, but it begins in, in verse 36. And as you listen to this, understand that he's using metaphorical terms. And metaphorical terms can be used to describe literal reality, but they can also point to an esoteric or inner truth that we realize about ourselves as individuals. And it's probably both at the same time. Both and, yeah, both and. It begins, And when the light shall begin to break forth, it shall be with them like unto a parable, which I, show, which I will show you. And of course, parables, again, same idea. Teaching about truth with examples in nature, usually. Ye look and behold the fig trees, and ye see them with your eyes, and ye say when they begin to shoot forth, and their leaves are yet tender, that summer is now nigh at hand. Now, a good portion of this section of DNC is spent talking about the second coming. And we spend a lot of time on Latter-day Contemplation talking about contemplating nature. Christ is giving us the example of a fig tree that if you look upon it and you see its shoots begin to break forth, you know that summer is near. How might we look inward and recognize within ourselves these shoots of summer breaking forth? Summer, of course, being a metaphor of coming light, um, knowledge, understanding of God. So how might we be able to look at ourselves and metaphorically see the change? So that's a, that's a question that I think this begs for me as I read that. Even so, it shall be in that day when they shall see all these things, then shall they know that the hour is nigh. Again, talking about the second coming. 
And the second coming does not have to be a, a singular event. I certainly think all the people that have anticipated the second coming over the last two millennia, if they looked at it as a singular event, have been really disappointed. Well, we've talked about this recently too, right? You know, the Lord says in many sections in the Doctrine and Covenants, what's well, something that appears at least 33 times, and most of them in the Doctrine and Covenants. There's Revelation 21, 22, I think. There's, there are a couple of references in Revelation, but mostly in the Doctrine and Covenants, he says, I come quickly. Well, how, do we, how does that come out true? <laughs> right? How does that come out true? The answer is you have to think of it in terms of something that happens to you. Something, you know, if you can look at, we gave the example of the brother of Jared. Now, and I mentioned Moses in connection with the brother of Jared because the brother of Jared, he got this yuhu peekaboo experience of, hey, over here, burning bush, which by the way, if, if it's a desert and there's any source that ignites that, whether it be lightning or whatever, it's not surprising it's going to burn. But the fact that it's not consumed, that's interesting. And so that gets Moses's attention, but he's not seeing God. I mean, he is, but he isn't, right? There's a cloud there's a burning bush. There are these kind of experiences. And yet he knows he's on holy ground. He doffs his sandals. He realizes that, right? Ooh, I love this. Check this out. Verse 41 goes right to what you're speaking of. And they, sh okay, verse 41st. And they shall see signs and wonders, for they shall be shown forth in the heavens above and in the earth beneath. And they shall behold blood and fire and vapors of smoke. Notice how all these things can be signs of God's coming to them. Isn't that incredible? It is. And the brother of Jared, he actually sees, and now remember, he's someone who's done the inner work. And and we've talked about this with Morgan Aldis too, when we talked about alchemy. It looks like the work that the brother of Jared is doing is alchemical. What he's doing with the stones and the polishing, and that can, that's an outer work. The, the alchemist is doing this outer work in the lab that really is a reflection of an inner work. And that's what it's really about is the inner work. It's not about polishing stones on the outside. It's about polishing the mirror of the heart or the soul or the intellect. And so what does that get him? He sees the finger of God, not a burning bush, not vapor, the finger of God. And before long, the Lord comes quickly. Well, and a contemplative thought to kind of pair with that is that Moses represents his experience with God as a burning bush. The brother of Jared represents his experience as seeing the finger of God. What if they saw the same thing? And they just described it in different terms. Well, and the brother of Jared sees all of God, right? He's, it starts with the finger, but at that point, you know, once he sees the finger of God, the Lord can't hide. The, the veil is, is parted, right? And he, he gets to see all of God. And we don't, you know, and Moses went from the burning bush to the, to the mountain, right? He went to the, he ascended the, to the, to the mountain, which we can think of as the temple. And there we don't, he, he doesn't tell us what he saw, but it, God talked to him apparently face to face. He sees God. He gets the 10 commandments. And, and that's it. That's what I'm getting at. What if they saw the same thing, right? Cause Moses says it's a burning bush, but he spoke with God face to face. And the brother of Jared says he sees the finger and then the whole body of God. 
But what if what he's seeing is a burning bush that he interprets as God? And I'm not trying to overanalyze this. I guess what I'm trying to say is that the contemplative sees these signs in nature and recognizes them for what they truly are, for what they truly represent. So whether it's fire and blood and vapors of smoke or the sun being darkened, the moon turning to blood, the stars falling from the heaven, these are all natural occurrences. And think about it. He's describing eclipses. He's describing meteor showers. And yet the interpretation for that, for that observer who's in the mindset of the spirit is to see God in that stuff. Yeah, and you're bringing us back to, to something I mentioned earlier. If we take, uh, we have this word now, scientism, and scientism is distinct from science in its recognition that science can only deal with what can be measured. And we have scientists who have overstepped their bounds. And this is why there's, this is why there are philosophers. The original scientists were philosophers. Aristotle was both what we would think of today as a scientist and what we would think of today as a philosopher. And as the two broke apart, in terms of dealing with first and second order questions, questions about what we can know versus questions about how we can know. And the philosopher gets stuck with those harder questions. And the scientist deals with the questions of what we can know. And it's still the philosopher's job today to keep the scientists honest. We have a very real problem in the world today in which people have made scientism a religion. And they've put way too much trust in some... in, in, in in, well, there is no word for this. I'm going to coin the term scientismists because they're not scientists. And for this reason, even some of the top living philosophers in the world were brought to BYU. When I was at BYU, I think it was actually after I graduated, I was teaching at UVU and nearby, and I would attend these lectures. They brought some of the top philosophers in the world to actually deal with scientism because the scientismists have overstepped their bounds. They'll say things like, well, we know that there are electrical signals in the brain and chemical sig signals in the brain, and there you go, we've explained consciousness. And the philosopher says, whoa, wait a minute, no. You've explained aspects of consciousness. There is a lot that you have not explained. Let's, let's keep things straight, right? There's science, and you can only deal with electrical impulses, and you can only deal with chemical uh, happenings. You can't deal with this whole other part that we don't understand anymore. Consciousness is something that we understand no more than sleep. Let's face it, we don't really understand either one of them. These are part of what Al-Ghazali calls the unseen world. So given all this, as you mentioned, Riley, there are these signs, there are these occurrences, there are these happenings, there are these things that we, if we're in this scientismist point of view, then we think that they can only be explained in terms of what can be measured, and we ignore those possibilities that cannot be measured. And so we, we have to be able to take these signs and stop trying to explain them all away materially and be present to the reality. And look, in fact, the blood moon is something that happens on a regular basis. And, does that, and, and we have an explanation for it, a scientific explanation for it. So what? That's not the point. The point is, what openings are there for you? If you're taking not a, not a scientific or a scientismist approach, what openings are possible for you in those experiences? Well, I think the greatest opening is the promise that Christ gives to every generation. The day of my coming is nigh at hand. Yes. Why would that be a lie for one generation and a, a truth for another? 
It's not. Exactly. It's, it's a truth for every generation. And that, yes. that second coming of, of Christ into the person, the potential for that to be true is for every generation. Yes, that's available to you now. Let me read this last verse of that section. Wherefore, if ye have slept in peace, blessed are you. Very beatitude-like language there. For as you now behold me and know that I am, even so shall ye come unto me, and your souls shall live, and your redemption shall be perfected, and the saints shall come forth from the four quarters of the earth. Whoa, this reminds me of what I said earlier about sleep and what happens to the soul when we're asleep. Go through that again and, and the source of that teaching. Again, the, it's, it's, the, it's the Muslim teaching that the soul, because it's, a, because it's a stranger, as we've also corroborated from Doctrine and Covenants in this world, it can only take so much of this world and it has to rest. I mean, look what happens. Talk about irascibility. Talk about desires. I mean, I, I myself experience, and this is, I'm glad this came up because I wanted to share this too. It was in, it was in studying and it, and there's a time and a place for everything. And it really was, you know, I typically read until 1am, but when I'm still reading at 5am, something's gone wrong. And I was doing that on Mother's Day, and I was I was thinking about and reading about and studying the Divine Feminine, and I ended up with so little sleep that my wife asked me the question in the morning when I told her about this. She said, how are you standing? And I said, I don't know. And I spent most of the day not standing, and every time I stood, her question came to my mind, how can I even do this? And so the soul, we think this is again about the body. Yes, the body needs rest, but the soul needs rest. And the Islamic teaching is that the soul goes back to, we can say either back to God or back to the unseen world, whatever that means, right? It's, it's that the world that's not material, the world that it belongs to, because it's not of this world as we read in Doctrine and Covenants. I always love in Scripture when you come across those phrases that say something like, I have dreamed a dream, or in other words, I have seen a vision. I love those because how often do we have our personal revelations come to us in sleep? It's pretty cool. Um, I want to reference one other scripture in DNC. It's from 9721. And the reason why I want to bring this up is I want to connect very literally again this idea that Zion is for all of us in any age who come to God with purity of heart. Therefore, verily, thus saith the Lord, let Zion rejoice, for this is Zion, the pure in heart, and that's capitalized in the scripture. Therefore, let Zion rejoice. You recognize this, the, the, the structure of that, of that um, verse is very chiasmus. Verily thus saith the Lord, let Zion rejoice, for this is Zion, the pure in heart, therefore let Zion rejoice. That does have the structure of a chiasmus, yeah. And the center point of that chiasm is Zion, pure in heart. I mean, it's a short one, but it is nevertheless a chiasm. That's a powerful, uh, that's a, that's a powerful vision or 
possibility. So to extend this even further down the road of a philosophy, Zion is also called the New Jerusalem. And Jerusalem, of course, means city of peace. So there's an individual aspect of Zion, which is, you know, my own purity of heart, finding my way to God by polishing that personal mirror and seeing God in myself. But there's also a community aspect of Zion, a city of peace. And I think this relates back to our earlier conversation about what the city, maybe in the classical sense, is. It's an extension of the individual, right? Yes, and it points us forward to the next beatitude, to blessed are the peacemakers. Yes, because it's all about relationships, right? You go from individual to how do we relate now to our neighbors? That's the next, the next rung in the ladder. And the answer is the two greatest commandments. And by the way, as, as our friend Shiloh has pointed out, all of political philosophy. Shiloh and I have studied philosophy together. We were classmates in, in college studying philosophy at BYU. We have both taught philosophy, political philosophy, in different venues. And we've 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 gone we've penetrated deeply into political philosophy and, and he has said, and I agree with him, all of political philosophy, even the one that Americans hold most dear, begins where the first two commandments end. Yeah, where they break where down. Where we fail, where they break down, where we fail to keep those commandments. That's where all of political philosophy begins. It's all about force. Right. And we spoke about this in our last episode somewhat, that the very existence of the coercive state is a direct reflection of our failure to yes. fill in those gaps, to, to fill, exactly. the, fill the needs ourselves of our own free will. So I like how you took this from this beatitude we're focusing on, pure, pure in heart, to that next rung with blessed are the peacemakers. And maybe this is a good leadoff point for our next episode, which we'll get into um, next week. And that is blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. And I love that the blessing that goes along with peacemakers being known as the children of God, because that's how we know our neighbors when we are operating in that, that beatitudinal pattern of recognizing our brothers and sisters as children of God. That, that gives us the ability to make peace with them regardless of what their actions are, because we're seeing in them their true nature despite how they're acting. Yes. This is really exciting. I'm looking forward to next week. Well, Christopher, we're coming up on the end of this episode. Is there anything else you wanted to highlight or talk about? I don't think so. Well, let's leave a little bit of mystery for the next episode then and uh, call this one good. Well, with that, I'm Christopher Hurtado. And I'm Riley Risto. And this has been Latter-day Contemplation. Have a great week. 